0: Oh, I love that hymn, don't you? Amen. His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. It reminds me of a couple of passages. That, that verse in particular reminds me of a couple of passages in the Bible first passage is that which takes place right after the flood when God had brought Noah and his family safely through they first entered out on out of the ark onto dry land the bible says that god entered into a covenant he made a promise he took an oath with Noah and yes, with the people and the ark, but with all of the descendants, with all of mankind, he made a promise. He took an oath that he would not again destroy the earth with a flood. And then, to make it sure and certain, he gave what a symbol, and what was the symbol of that covenant? The rainbow. The rainbow symbol of God's promise. Now, the other passage that that song reminds me of is our passage this morning here, Hebrews chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there again, Hebrews chapter 6, page 1004 in your Bibles, there. It's another passage that follows a, a time of. Of overwhelming warning. Last week, if you were here, we looked through chapter five, beginning about verse number eleven, down through chapter six, verse nine, and is one of the most uh, dreadful passages in the New Testament. It is one filled with warning for those who are not fully, fully committed and following the Lord Jesus, but going through the externals of religion. It's a it's a passage of real warning, a flood of warning, you could say. But then it is immediately followed with a passage of wonder, a passage of full assurance. And such full assurance because is based on the promise of God. God who takes an oath, and then you're going to see in a few minutes in reality at the end of the whole passage, There's a rainbow. There's a rainbow. This morning, I want us to continue through Hebrews and this passage that follows the warning, a warning to us to make sure that we fully do press on to truly know Christ and not turn back from Him. There's this incredible passage that's about blessed assurance. Blessed assurance. That's another great hymn, isn't it? But you know, it's more than a hymn. It is a reality for everyone who knows and trusts in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to look at how God enters into a covenant. He makes a promise. He he takes an oath about how sure and certain is the salvation of every true believer in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. It's about blessed assurance. Now... Notice where this blessed assurance comes from and how it is experienced in our lives. That's what I want you to notice this morning. How do we experience this blessed assurance of our ultimate salvation? Well, if you'll look at the passage again with me, beginning at verse 10, you're going to see that, first of all, it begins through our service to people. Now, that may seem seem strange, but I think you'll see how real it truly is. That it is through our serving people, God says, that we experience assurance. Our assurance in Christ is directly connected to our service for people. Folks who do not serve people will not have assurance of their salvation. It's serving others that we express the fruit of salvation. Now, notice that. That's what the writer says here. In verses 7 through 8, he talks about a land that doesn't produce any fruit. It produces thorns and thistles. And then immediately he says this in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. He says, now I know I've warned you sternly, but as I look at your life, I am persuaded of better things that I see in your life, things that truly accompany salvation. Now what are those things that accompany salvation? Notice he says in verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, notice what encourages the heart of the writer here, this author of Hebrews. He is encouraged because he is seeing in these believers service for other Christians, saints. And it's being done in the Savior's name. Now notice there's two parts to this. Confidence, assurance comes when we really do see the fruit of us serving the saints. That's the fruit of true salvation. Serving other believers. Serving also other people. But it's not just service. People can serve and and not really serve for the right reasons. But it's service for his name. You see, these two things always go together. What was it that Jesus said when he was asked, what is the great commandment? You will love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then he said, here's the second, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God, love for others always go together. And how is it demonstrated? Well, the next thing Jesus told was a story about what? The good Samaritan who showed true love by his service. This is exactly what is being said to us here today. That it is service for His name. That means it's service prompted by His name. It means His name means who He is. It doesn't mean you just go out and say, well, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. No, in Jesus' name is not something you just tack on to the end of a blessing you say over your meal. In Jesus' name means because of the reality of Jesus. Because of who he is. Because of what he's done for me. I am serving others. You see when a person truly knows the Lord Jesus who was the greatest servant of all. Right? When the greatest servant of all lives in your heart. Guess what he's going to make you to become? A servant of others. It's prompted by his name. And it promotes his name. You see, people are really impressed not so much by the words that we share about our faith, but by what? The works that show the reality of our faith. What did James say? He said, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now this is a part of assurance. When you see that something has happened in your heart so that you desire to serve others, that's a work of God. You know why? Because at heart, all of us are selfish rascals. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And only God's grace can change that into being a servant of others. That's an evidence of salvation. It expresses the fruit of salvation. But now let's go a little bit deeper. You see, serving others doesn't just express the fruit of salvation. Listen carefully. It's through serving others that we experience. We experience the full assurance of salvation. We, we sense it. We really feel our salvation When we serve others. Verse 11 says this. And we desire each one of you. To show the same. Earnestness. Same earnestness for what? Doing these works. In his name for others. Show the same. Earnestness for this. So that you may have. Full assurance. Of the hope. Until the end. Now notice that. Notice the progression. It's our faith that produces our service, our works. These these works, this service is prompted by the love of Christ in our hearts. And when we do these faithful works prompted by love, what's the outcome? Hope. Assurance. The reality that truly there is a Lord in my life. Now, Paul, he expressed the same thing to the Thessalonians. <laughs> he wrote a letter back to them saying he was so glad they were showing that they truly had become believers. And here's what he said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says... That we are remembering before our God and Father your works of love. Note this. Your works of faith. Your labor of love. Your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing. Your faith has produced these labors. These labors of love that are resulting in you having a steadfastness of hope. That's how we experience. We experience this salvation. Now, how does that happen? What, what's required? How does it happen if we want to experience the assurance of this full salvation? What do we got to do? Well, number one, there's got to be, we've got to be people who are personally initiating faithful service. We are personally initiating it. Look at what he says here in verse number 11. We desire, it's our intent desire that each one of you show the same earnestness. You see that word earnestness? That's an athletic term. It means to press with all your might. It means to go for the goal. To take this goal and go toward it. And what is the goal? It is to serve others. And he says you must take this initiative. You know what a lot of people think is it's completely backwards. It's very, very, it's very understandable that people would think this way. But it is completely backwards. Let me tell you what they think. When I start feeling love toward people, I'm going to start serving. Well, I don't know about you, but I know me. I'm going to be sitting around a lot. And people think, you know, if I don't feel it in my heart, I'm not going to do it. Because if I don't feel it in my heart and then I do it, I'm a hypocrite. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Wow, that's, that, is, that makes so much sense. But it is totally wrong and bogus. You don't start with the feeling. You start with the initiative, the action, and then the feeling comes. You say, now, where? who's your authority for that? Well, how about Jesus? He's pretty good authority, wouldn't you say? Let me tell you, when he said it, he said one of the strangest things you've ever heard. had the upper room supper with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. The Passover. They were going to observe the Passover. And guess what? After a while, Jesus got up from his seat. He took off his cloak. He wrapped a towel around him, took a basin, filled it with water, and started washing the disciples' feet. Now, why did Jesus do that? Number one... Because no one else would. You see, you had to wash your hands and feet before a meal, ceremonially. But someone was to do it in a fancy meal. Who was to do it? The slave. And none of the twelve disciples wanted to say, I'll be the slave. So the Lord Jesus The king of glory, their master and savior, got up. And he did the work of a slave. And then he said the most amazing thing after he had done that. Do you know what he said? He said, now you call me Lord and master and such I am. And I have washed your feet. Then he said this. Now you know these things. You will be happy If you do them. You know this. To serve others like I have served you. You know this. But you'll be blessed. You'll experience me if you do it. What did Jesus say? He said don't wait around for the feeling. Do what you know you're supposed to do. And you will experience my joy. What do we learn from that? Here's what we learn from it. It's not in your notes. But it's this. We savor the Savior by serving. We savor. We, we taste Him. We experience Him. We savor the Savior by serving. Yesterday it was a great example of that. We had wonderful people stood up here that they served yesterday in community service. And I imagine there was a few of them that didn't just leap out of bed and say, hot dog, I get to get up early on Saturday morning and go serve people. No. Maybe some of them did. God bless them, they're much more spiritual than me. But they did it. And I assure you, you could ask any of these people who stood and served yesterday if they're saying today, you know, that was a waste of time. I just didn't get anything out of that. Uh-uh. No. No. They started working and they started seeing the faces of single moms light up. Elderly people with smiles on their face as their yards were taken care of. People encouraged. They started seeing that. And they started sensing something in their heart. What? The approval of the Lord, which is His joy. His joy. We experience full assurance of salvation by personally initiating faithful service. You've got to do it. And then experience but then also by personally imitating faithful servants. You've got to imitate those who've been faithful servants. Look at verse 12. This is what a writer says. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators. You see that word imitators? It means mimics. You mimic. You become mimics of those Who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says you don't want to be sluggish. That word sluggish is the same word verse 11 of chapter 5. You remember the word there is dull. Same word. It means literally no push. Don't become a person who has no push in your life. When it comes to serving. But follow after and... Imitate those who have been faithful examples of patience and endurance, serving God and serving others. You know, friend, listen. One faithful example can inspire thousands. One faithful example can inspire thousands and change generations. I was thinking this week, It's the week following the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. Of course, we know how renowned he was for leading the peaceful demonstration against terrible sin of discrimination. But you know, it wasn't just people like the great Martin Luther King Jr. that inspired people. You know who inspired many, so many, and inspired him as well? A seamstress in Montgomery, Alabama, who on December 1st, 1955, was told to get out of her seat in the colored section of the bus and make room for a white patron. And that dear lady, Rosa Parks, said, I'm not going to do it. She was tired. And she was tired of it. And so she refused. She was arrested, fingerprinted. Because she would not give up her seat to a white person. And her dignified disobedience inspired so many. Inspired so many. So many people inspired by her actions to believe that if this lady can do it and refuse to give in to such unjust discrimination, I can as well. And because of that, many inherited the promise of equality. Equality. Now, in verses 13 to 18, I want you to see this. The author uses the greatest example of all. He uses the greatest hero that he can use for any Jewish people, any Jewish person. And that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jewish people. Encouraging them to persevere and go on serving the Lord and serving others. And he uses the greatest example of someone who had faith in a faithful God. It's the example of the patriarch Abraham. And what do we learn about Abraham in assurance? Here's what we learn from Abraham about assurance. We learn that assurance comes through our sovereign's promise. Through our sovereign God's promise. That's where assurance comes from. Our assurance is going to come through our sovereign God's promise. Now, we have hope, friends. We have hope as Christians for one reason. And that's a promise. A promise. A promise made by God. But now let me ask you a question. What is necessary? Listen carefully. What is necessary for someone's promise to produce confidence? What's necessary? If somebody makes you a promise, what's necessary for their promise to produce confidence in you? You have to have a belief and trust in their character, right? Their promise is only as good as their character. The promise is as good as of the character who the one who's making the promise. Now, I've shared before in years past one of the one of the great life learning moments in my life is from this kind of experience. It's an experience. From the life of my dad, who had a sixth grade education, worked 32 years, Chrysler Corporation, never made a lot of money. And every end of every summer, we had to go buy school clothes. Now, you know how boys are growing. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know... It was terrible back then. You had to. Mom would make you get pants that were three inches too long. You remember this? You know, roll them up. You'll grow into them. Yeah. And I looked like a dork until then. You know. <laughs> but, but so you just get stocked up in August for your school clothes. Well, my dad could not afford to just go write a check for all of our school clothes. He couldn't. So. There were stores in our town where dad had an account. Some of you can remember this. You could put it on account, meaning that you're getting the merchandise, you put a little money down, and then you're going to pay it off. You put it on account. Well, one time, I remember this, I might have been 9 or 10 years old. And I'm in there, I'm not liking it as I'm trying on these blue jeans and having to roll them up, and we get all this stuff. We take it up to the counter, my brother's stuff there. It's just heaped up, and the owner of the store happens to be back in the office, and so there's this young man working the counter, and my dad says, I'd like to put that on my account. The man looked at him kind of strange, and he picked up the intercom. Sir, uh, there's a gentleman out here that wants to put all this Clothing on account. It's a a very big amount. And then I heard the manager say through the intercom, What's his name? And the the young man said, Luther Polson. And then I heard the voice come over the speaker, Selling the whole store. (laughs) Selling the whole store. And you know what? In that moment, my dad grew about six inches because I learned something. My Father keeps His promises. My Father keeps His promises. Church, let me tell you something. Our Father keeps His promises. Because His character is at stake. He keeps His promises. Our Heavenly Father is the ultimate promise keeper. He's the ultimate promise keeper. Now here's an eternal example of how God keeps His promise. It's His promise to Abraham. God made all kinds of promises to Abraham. Do you remember? He met Abraham when Abraham was not a believer. His name was Abram at that time. He lived in the Ur of the Chaldees over in someplace in modern Iran, that area. He was a pagan idol worshiper. He did not know God. God revealed himself to Abraham and said, You follow me, and I will give you a land you've not yet seen, and I will make of you a great nation. Descendants will come from you. I will make you a blessing. The Bible says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He put his faith in God, and his faith in God was counted for righteousness. Friends, there's only been one way people ever get saved. You get saved by faith. We go to heaven the same way Abraham went to heaven. By faith in the Lord. He believed. He believed God. Now, in order for those promises to be fulfilled, descendants, a great nation, what do you have to have? Children. Abraham and Sarah didn't have children. Children. When God revealed himself to Abraham, Abraham was 75 years old and his wife was 65 and they had no children. And for 25 years, they continued to not have children. Yet God said, nations will come from you. I will make of you a great nation and nations will come from you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That went on for 25 years. Abraham had some lapses of faith and Sarah trying to come up with a better idea than God's plan. And we're still suffering from that to this very day. But eventually God said, no, I'm going to give you a son and you're going to call him Isaac. Which means laughter. Because I heard Sarah laughing about it. And that's what you're going to name. And you know what? (laughs) Abraham was 100. And his wife was 90. And their tent went from being a tent of geriatrics to a tent of obstetrics. Okay? (laughs) It, it 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 became the neonatal unit. As this baby was born to a man a hundred and his wife ninety. Now our text here is talking about a promise God made to Abraham. Do you see that? But the promise it's talking about is a promise God made to him 14 or 15 years later. Abraham's now about 114, 115. Isaac's 14 or 15 years of age. And God says, I want you to offer your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Offer him as a burnt offering to me on one of the mountains of Moriah. Mountains of Moriah are the mountains on which Jerusalem is built. One of those hilltops, Mount Calvary. And you remember Abraham struggling, crying out to God for those three days. But he was willing to trust God with his son, believing he was even able to raise him from the dead because he knew God could not what? God could not lie. So if he wants me to take my son's life and he can't lie, he must be planning to raise him from the dead. Can you imagine that? That's the faith that he worked out in his mind. And so just as he is about to take his son's life, God stopped him. <laughs> and he saw, what did he see? A ram caught by his horns in a thorn bush. What did he see on that hilltop? A ram crowned with thorns. A dress rehearsal for Calvary. And here's what God said. Here's the promise. Here's, here's the promise. Surely, because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, surely in blessing I will bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Look up to the heavens. You can't count the stars. You won't be able to count your descendants. And all nations will be blessed by you. He said... That Abraham would be blessed and he sealed it with an oath. God took an oath. He put himself on the witness stand. And because he couldn't raise his hand and swear to someone higher than him. Because there's no one higher than God. He swore by himself. I will bless you. I will bless you. Now notice. That's verse 17. Let's read on. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise... Not just to Abraham, notice that. To the heirs of the promise. The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why did God do this? Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We, circle that word, we, not Abraham. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's making the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and their heirs. Now, who are the heirs of Abraham and Isaac? well there's the physical heirs who came from the who came from that one man and that one boy all of their descendants the people of Israel the Jewish people i read this week today in the world There are 14,500,000 Jewish people in the world today. 14,500,000. Listen carefully. 6,500,000 live in Israel. In 1948... After that terrible, terrible ordeal that the survivors of the Holocaust experienced in Israel. In 1948 when they became a nation. How many Jewish people were in Israel? 650,000. Today, 6,500,000. Ten times more. Friends, I want to tell you something. God keeps His promises. And a Satan-possessed, evil, megalomaniac like Adolf Hitler or any other Satan-possessed haters of the Jewish people cannot wipe them out. Cannot be done because God promised. He promised. You know what he promised? He says, at the last days, listen, church, at the last days, I will say up to the nations, I'll say to the nations, give up my people. And I will gather the people of Israel back from the nations to which I have scattered them. And they shall dwell in the land. They will come to this land. And friends, every day, plane loads, Jewish people coming back. 6,500,000 people back. Nothing's happened like it in the history of the world. But God said it would happen before the return of the King of the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, lift up your head. Redemption's drawing nigh. We hear these fearful things in the Middle East. I understand we hear these things. They cause us great fear. But what should they remind us to do? Pray and watch. Why? Because God said in the last days, I will make of Jerusalem a boiling pot among the nations. I will gather my people from the earth. Back to the land and I'll make Jerusalem a boiling pot. And then will come the salvation. Oh, what a day to live. Amen? Read your papers. Stay up to date. But no, God has got this. Amen? He's got it. He's got it. The world's not headed to hell and the devil. The world is headed to an appointment with Jesus Christ who's coming again. You know, none of that's in my notes. Can you believe that? (laughs) Physical heirs. But he made the promise here. Listen, the promise here is not made to physical heirs. Particularly, it's spiritual heirs. Who are the spiritual heirs? What did God say to... Listen, what did God say to Abraham? I'm going to bless... The Jewish people because of you? There were no Jewish people. What did he say? I'm going to bless the nations through you. What does that mean? That through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, his Isaac, that he would not spare, but he would put him on the cross on Calvary and raise him from the dead. Through that second Isaac, Jesus The gospel will go to the nations, Jews and Gentiles, and all who believe in him, whether they are Japanese, American, whether they are Bolivians, whether they are of Chad, or whether they are Palestinians, Arabs, all who believe in Jesus are the sons of Abraham. Galatians, Paul said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, not the Jews, but the Gentiles also by faith, preached the gospel beforehand in Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are heirs of the same promise that he made to Abraham. This is our promise. And this is the reason that we have assurance. Because the promise is not just for Abraham, but it's for all his sons and daughters. And everyone who believes believes in Jesus is a son or daughter of Abraham. And he secured it with an oath. He secured it with an oath for those who have fled for refuge. Look at verse 18. Those who have fled for refuge might have encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We, we who have fled for refuge. This is beautiful. This is from the Old Testament. There were six cities that were set aside as cities of refuge where someone who had an enemy trying to kill them, maybe trying to carry out justice on them, supposedly, if they could make it to the city of refuge, nobody could touch them, their case would be heard. There were six of these. Now notice what he says. We are those who have fled for refuge. Who is our refuge? It is God himself, our refuge and strength. And we have fled to God so that the enemy of our souls, Satan, the destroyer, cannot touch us. Because our life is hidden with Christ in God, our refuge. That's a safe place, don't you think? That's a safe place. And God says you will be safe. And he secured it by two unchangeable things. What are those two unchangeable things? His promise and his oath. He made a promise, and he's a God who cannot lie. And he took an oath on his name that every person who has fled to Jesus will have hope, assurance. I love that song, don't you? How firm a foundation. I love that stanza, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Now that's a promise, right? That's the promise of our God, our living God and his loving son. Our time's gone. You haven't listened quickly enough. (laughs) But we have assurance through one other thing. Just notice this. Through our sovereign's promise and through our Savior's priesthood. He's got to get back to this, this high priest message. We have this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters in into the inner place behind the veil, behind the curtain. That's the holy of holies. We have an anchor that goes into the very presence of God. What is that anchor? That anchor is a person. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of this great man, Melchizedek, we'll talk about him in the weeks ahead. But notice, it is an anchor. There's two anchors here. Years ago, when Susan and I went to have a time away at Pensacola Beach, we, we made a day trip over to Mobile, and we went up on the battleship, the, the battleship Alabama. Don't know if any of you have ever done that. Two anchors on that ship each anchor weighed 25,000 pounds each anchor two anchors here our soul is anchored we look to the we look backward to God it's anchored by the promises of God God who cannot lie his promise and his oath We look backward. I have assurance as I look backward to my God who has promised. And I have assurance and anchor as I look forward. I look forward to a person who's gone into the presence of God. That is my Savior, Jesus Christ. This is so beautiful. Our hope rests on a sovereign God who has taken an oath. And our hope rests on a Savior the Son of God who has taken a seat, right? God the Father has taken an oath, and God the Son has taken a seat. He has gone to the presence of God and sat down. He is there interceding for us now, and He is our pioneer, that He's our forerunner. He has gone before us. He's already there. I go to prepare a place for you, He said. He goes. He has gone before us. He has gone for us. He is there making intercession for us. And thank God, not only is he gone before us and he's gone for us, but he's coming back for us. Right? He's coming back. He's going to stand up from that throne one day, and he's going to step out into time and space, and once again he will come, not the meek and mild babe of Bethlehem. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and He's coming with salvation for His people. God made a promise. His Son has made promises. God sits on a throne, and His Son sits on a throne with Him. And what are we told that encircles that throne? A rainbow. A rainbow. Every time you see a rainbow, yes, think about Noah and the flood and the promise. But every time you see a rainbow, think about God the Father and God the Son and the rainbow of the covenant promise that encircles them. It's an anchor. That rainbow is Jesus saying, I'm your anchor. The storms won't last forever. You will make it home. I promise. I promise.